are you guys ready to get into the Word? If you like to follow along in your own Bible, or maybe you got your Bible on your phone, however you like to do it, you can turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4. You know, we've been on this long journey with the Apostle Paul, right? We've seen that his story takes up half of the book of Acts, basically from Acts 13 all the way through Acts 28. And after we finished Acts, we looked at what happened at the end of Paul's life. A fourth missionary journey, where he, you know, uh, writes on his fourth missionary journey, he writes Titus and 1 Timothy. And then finally, what we've been looking at is his last words, his last letter during his second imprisonment in Rome. So Paul, he was released after his first house arrest in Rome. He had a pretty peaceable time there, does some more ministry. And then finally, we're not told how, but he is arrested and he's put in a terrible situation in Rome. So much so that um, it's hard to find him. Uh, he's in dire straits. He doesn't have freedom of movement. There's not a lot of people with him. In fact, we'll see only Luke was with him. Uh, he's cold, he doesn't have his cloak with him, he doesn't have his books with him. It's a miserable situation. And yet, and at the same time, he, he knows that his life is, is nearing its end. He's nearing the finish line. And so as he's, you know, preparing basically to depart to be with the Lord, probably in a, in a few months, he writes this final letter, this final word, and he gives it to his primary disciple, who is Timothy. Right? He had already written him one letter. This is his second letter. And he's pouring out his heart to Timothy. He's basically instructing him how to carry on the ministry after Paul goes to be with Christ. And what we've been, we've, we've looked at the first three chapters of 2 Timothy. Now we're going to look at the last chapter of 2 Timothy this morning. 2 Timothy chapter 4. Let's pick up in verse 1. I'm actually, I usually have been using the New King James Version, but somehow when I was <laughs> copying and pasting some of this stuff into my notes, I copy and pasted the NIV. So I'm going to be using the NIV this morning. Um, it, it's pretty much, you know, it's not like there's much of a difference, especially in this chapter between the two, but I am reading from the NIV this morning. Okay, 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 2. In the presence of God... And of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. Let's just stop right there and think about what what Paul is saying here. I mean, Paul is not saying light things to Timothy here, right? He's not even really giving suggestions to Timothy. Rather, these are very weighty words. And he says, in the presence of God in Christ Jesus, I'm now giving you a very important charge. So don't just receive this as though it's my word. But as I just told you a verse or two earlier, Timothy, that all scripture is God breathed. So me speaking in the very presence of God, in the presence of Jesus Christ, I'm giving you something straight from the throne. And the primary instruction, he says, is what? Preach the word, right? Preach the word. You know, he reminds Timothy that Jesus Christ will be the judge of every creature who has ever lived or ever shall live, right? He says, in, in, in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead. You know, the Bible teaches, Paul teaches this in 1 and 2 Corinthians, that everyone will stand before the judgment seat of Christ, right? That is something weighty, to consider, right? At the end of our life, and before the one who died on the cross for our salvation, and who has inherited an eternal throne, all of us will stand before that man. And Christ himself says that when we stand before him, there will be either one or two situations, right? He will either say, you denied me, 
You scorned my sacrifice. You rejected my gift and my presence to you in this world. Right? Therefore, depart from me. You, you have your part, as it says in Revelation chapter 20, in the lake of fire with the beast and the false prophet and Satan. Or he will say, my child, you confess me before men, and I have confessed you before my Father and the angels of heaven. You saw me in others, you received me into your life. Enter into the joys of resurrected life. And, and Paul is, is, is reminding Timothy, listen, you know, he will judge the living and the dead. In fact, when Paul was in Athens, and he was preaching before some of the most learned men in the world, he's preaching to the philosophers on Mars Hill. You know what he tells them? And they began to scoff at, at least some of them, some of them believed, like Dionysius. But others scoffed. And because he talked about the resurrection of Jesus who would judge everybody. This is what he told the philosophers in Acts 17.30. He said, Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because He has appointed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom He has ordained. Who's that? Jesus. He has given assurance of this to all, by raising him from the dead. Paul is reminding Timothy that is what, what is of utmost importance in life is eternal things. Everything in life that is not built on Christ is just wood, hay, and stubble, and guess what? We're going to think, why in the world did I build my life on wood, hay, and stubble, and it just went up in smoke in heaven, right? Or... It's built on Christ, it's built on His Spirit, it's built on His love, it's built on His Word, and that's precious, shining, heavenly treasures that, that shine forever. Let's go to the judgment seat of Christ, as like, as like Paul says here, as, as those who are longing, longing to, for His appearing, right? In view of His appearing and His kingdom. Longing to see him in such a way that it, uh, uh, you know, he has truly affected how, how we treat others and how we love others. People who, who have been transformed by his grace, by his goodness, by his mercy, by his forgiveness. That, that the object of going before the judgment seat of Christ is, is, a, is a joy to us. He's the one who, who has shed his blood for all of our sins and, and I'm just in awe of him and, and I'm at his feet and, and what a joy to go before my Savior. And in light of the fact that Timothy is one day going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, the one who will judge the living and the dead, Paul gives him a charge. He says, preach the word. You know, everything that is of utmost importance for life and for godliness is found in the Word of God. Paul had just told Timothy, right, that the entirety of Scripture, all Scripture, like Jesus said, down to the jot and down to the tittle, the Scripture cannot be broken, Jesus says. All Scripture is breathed out by God. It's inspirited and it is profitable that it can equip us for every good work, that it can mature us. And Paul is, is again reminding Timothy that the Word of God should be what is central in the life of the people of God. It's not that the Word of God is the only thing, right, that we do, right? Prayer, singing praise, meeting each other's needs, communion, love feasts, all these things are important. But the Word must always remain central in the life of the people of God, for that is what anchors a community, for it is God's very breathed-out Word. The charge to Timothy was a very simple and straightforward charge. Continue to preach the Word of God. Don't get distracted by other things like the false teachers who are all over Ephesus and around the world. You know, focus on the Word of God. Preach it. He tells them to be in season. And out of season, be ready in season and out of season. Meaning, when the harvest is blessed, when there seems, you know, to be, uh, you know, a lot of people and, and, and ministry seems great, preach the word. 
when it seems don't, things don't seem as great, when people are deserting you, when it seems like there's a drought, preach the word, right? No matter the circumstance in life, no matter the challenges you faced in life, always be ready to herald forth the word of God, Timothy. You know, in one sense, this is not just a charge to ministers or preachers. In one sense, this is a charge for each and every one of us. We all, in one sense, are those who herald the good news, who herald the gospel. We all should be like someone who is having some part of the Word of God where we're chewing on it, where we're meditating on it, where we're feasting on it, because no man lives on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And, and we should always be ready in season and out of season with a word that can, be encur- that can bring encouragement, not just to ourselves, but to those around us, right? Be ready in season. Be ready out of season. He, he says that, that the preaching should be done with great patience and careful instruction, meaning we need to be very careful about writing people off as lost causes. We need to be very patient with people as they mature in the truth. You know, how many know that transformation in the life of Christ, it isn't something that happens overnight, right? Timothy would be dealing with a lot of people that could test his patience if he allowed his mentality to be controlled by the flesh. So Paul reminds him, have great patience, right? Remember the great patience of Jesus. Remember the fruit of patience that's in you by the power of the Holy Spirit, right? Be patient with people. Preach the word to them. The word will do the work. You know, eventually they'll come around. Just just be faithful. Just keep sowing seed. Just keep watering, Timothy. Be patient. God was patient with me, Timothy. I once was killing Christians, right? What happened? My life turned around. He says, give careful instruction. That means that he must not handle the word of God flippantly, right? Rather, as Paul had instructed him, he is to rightly divide the word. And Timothy's careful instruction of God's word would be in great contrast to others. And at times, it probably wasn't necessarily all that popular. And this is what, in fact, Paul goes on to say in verse 3. Let's read it. 2 Timothy 4, verse 3. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. You know, that phrase that Paul uses here, sound doctrine, it only occurs five times in the Bible, and it's only in the letters he writes to Timothy and to Titus. And um, it's something that's particularly important to these two people who are, have, have roles of teaching and training other pastors. Sound doctrine. Um, uh, basically, the word sound, it simply means pure doctrine, uncorrupted doctrine, healthy doctrine, doctrine that flows from a right division of the Word of God. In fact, let's read uh, something that he says in the first letter he wrote to Timothy. In 1 Timothy 1, Verse 3, he says this, As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have departed from these and have turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they are talking about or what they so confidently affirm. We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to what? To the sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory 
of the blessed God which he entrusted to me. Right? So one of the very first things Paul says to Timothy in his first letter, right, is this importance of speaking and preaching sound doctrine, right? Because there's a lot of people who are going to be having meaningless talk. They're not going to have sound doctrine. They're going to be twisting the word of God. They're not going to be using it right. And it's the last thing that Paul writes to him in his last chapter of his second letter. It's like what sandwiches these letters together is, Timothy, you need to be someone who is truly concerned with rightly dividing the word and giving sound doctrine to the people of God. Why? Because there's a lot of people, Paul says, who have itching ears. That word can also mean tickled. They, they want their ears tickled, meaning they want to have teachers around them that will uh, confirm the, the style of living that, 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 that they're comfortable in. Uh, there, there's all sorts of different kinds of ear tickling that can go on. Uh, one thing that especially was happening in these congregations was, for instance, the mentioning of genealogies. It had to do with questions about tribal identity from a Jewish perspective. Even, you know, who could rightly serve in the priesthood, that sort of thing. And, and so it was all this, this weird going back to the old covenant, something probably a, a Judaistic uh, the, 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 the Judaizers that Paul is constantly con confronting in his letters, that, that they were tickling the ears of people and maybe having this sort of Jewish superiority thing of going on. Uh, but it could also be people who are also obsessed with secret knowledge, that they really, then they, um, you know, so they're concerned with, with fables, with Jewish fables. They're, they're concerned more with these secret writings rather than simply the Word of God itself. You know, uh, Jewish works, these fables at times, they stand opposed to what the clear word of God says. And so we got to be careful when we're, we're reading Jewish fables and myths. We got to say, okay, um, you know, let, let's make sure that we, we don't hold on to anything if it's in contradiction to the word of God. And, and, you know, be very careful about being obsessed with those sorts of writings in general. You know, people were dissatisfied apparently with the gospel with the suffering that it entailed at that time, with the persecutions they were experiencing from the Jews. And so they wanted to heap teachers who would tickle their ears and tell them things, you know, uh, contrary to the gospel. Um, they wanted uh, to constantly simply feel good and never be challenged by the word, never receive correction, never receive rebuke, but only be affirmed in whatever direction they're headed in, or in their own spiritual pride with their weird genealogical speculations. And so we need to be caref careful about that ourselves. You know, we need to always come uh, to the Word with a humble posture, right? Where we say, God, I don't want to hear what I want to hear. I want to hear what you want to tell me. So if I need correction by what I'm going to read today, Lord, may I be humble enough to receive correction. If I need to be rebuked, Lord, may I be humble enough to receive rebuke. If I need to be exhorted and encouraged, Lord, bring me exhortation and encouragement. Lord, but I want my life to be aligned with you. That's the type of, of, of teacher that Paul is calling Timothy to be. In, in, in verse 5, he goes on and says this, but you keep your head in all situations. Meaning, you know, you're, you're a sober-minded person. I think that's how the new King James translates it. You keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry, or fulfill your ministry. Um, you know, he, he, he's encouraged to, to keep plowing forward, right? Don't allow all of the crazy things going on in the church world around you to distract you, Timothy. Be sober-minded Focus on the Word of God, endure hardship, endure the persecutions you're going to face because you stand up for the Word of God, and continue to be a herald of the good news. Continue to be an evangelist, right? Fight the good fight. Continue pressing forward. Be like the evangelist Philip, who when he was invited by the Ethiopian eunuch to come up into his chariot and he sees the Word of God is open to Isaiah 53, be someone who can explain the gospel to people, right? Who can talk about the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
you know, um, never stray from simple, simply wanting to share the central message of the good news. Always be mindful of your role as an evangelist. What, what is Christmas about, right? It's about the angels coming and saying, I have good news of great joy for all people that to you today in the city of David is born a Savior. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah, the Lord. What is that? Good news of great joy. That's the evangel. It is the gospel. Someone who is an evangelist does what? They simply are one who continues to publish, who continues to rehearse the gospel, the good news of great joy. You know, um, to, uh, to preach sound doctrine doesn't mean, you know, you're, you're angry or you're dour or whatever. No, it, it means that you're not strained to silly talk and silly speculations. It means you're, you're staying focused on the truth of the word and, and the foundation which, of everything, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be an evangelist. Never lose your joy of preaching about the gospel of grace, of preaching about Jesus, Timothy. Fulfill your ministry. You know, keep running the race. Be able to say what I'm about to tell you right now, Timothy, which is this, 2 Timothy 4, verse 6. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time of my departure is near. Right now, he's, he's obviously using, uh, he, he's using metaphors here. His departure is his death. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for His appearing. Wow. You know, in his letter that he wrote to the Philippians, in his first imprisonment in Rome, so about probably a couple years earlier, he also speaks of his life being poured out as a drink offering. But he talks about it a little differently. I want to read what he says there. In Philippians 2.17, he says this, But even if... So he had just said, you know, how... He basically is planning to be released. He wants people to prepare their homes for him. He, he's prepared to go and do more ministry. And, and yet he says, you know, he's not 100% sure that that's going to happen, but it seems likely. And he says, but even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice of the sacrifice and service uh, coming uh, from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So there, in his first imprisonment, he's like, I don't think I'm being poured out quite as a drink offering yet, but if I am, that's okay. Well, now, in his last imprisonment, he's, he's certain of it, right? He says, I am already being poured out like a drink offering, like the drink offering is being poured. You know, I thought it might have been poured two years ago, but now it is being poured. What was the drink offering? It was the last part of the offering of the sacrifice. They would pour it on top of the sacrifice. It was and, and, and so it, it meant the completion of the sacrifice, the completion of one's life, the completion of one's service. And that's what Paul is saying. I'm, this is the end of my service. This is the end of my life. It's poured on uh, the sacrifice and, you know, like the sacrifice ascends in smoke. That's why it's called the ascension offering into the glory of God. Well, that's what uh, Paul's life is like. And that's why he says, he doesn't say, I'm getting ready to die he just says, I'm getting ready to depart. Just as a drink offering is poured out and then ascends into heaven, so Paul, he's being poured out and he's getting ready to ascend into heaven. Right? He would be martyred. He would be killed for the faith. According to tradition, which, you know, seems very well established, Paul was beheaded under the terrorist reign of Nero. And... Uh, you know, one reason he probably was beheaded is because that's what they did to Roman citizens. Peter, who wasn't a Roman citizen, what did they do to him? They crucified him upside down, just as Jesus said they would in, in John chapter 21. But, but Paul, he's beheaded. He, he's martyred, martyred. 
That's why he says, the time of my departure is at hand. He knew his first trial didn't go well. He knew they're getting ready to behead him. And the word Paul uses for departure would have been very vivid in Timothy's mind, this word he uses for departure. For instance, it is the same word that was used for the unyoking of an animal from its cart or its plow. So the departure, the unyoking had to do, it carried this idea of rest from one's toil. It was also a word that was used for loosening prison chains. In this sense, the, the release, the departure, it was a freedom. It was a release from bondage. It was an exchange of a Roman prison cell for the palace of the king in heaven. It, it, it was also a word for the loosening the ropes of a tent. Paul was ready to, to take up camp in, in his heavenly home. It was also a word for loosening the mooring ropes of a ship. He was ready to sail to the heavenly shoreline. In other words, by, when Paul was calling uh, you know, his death a departure, all of these images would have come up in the minds of those who read that Greek word. He was viewing it as something that was glorious, a time of rest, a time of freedom, a journey to go and be with Jesus Christ. Something that he faced with absolutely no fear. Something that he was embracing with joy. He told the Philippians to live as Christ and to die as gain. He, know, he knew that to be with Christ is far better. It, for he would be with him in a far more intimate way than he had been even in this life. And in view of that impending departure to be with Christ, he begins to reflect on his life. And he says three things about it. He says, first, I have fought the good fight. Man, I want to just be able to say that. I have fought. I want to be a fighter. You know, uh, a lot of us, you know, it's easy just to watch fighters fight, right? We're fans. We like to watch the fighters. How about we get in the fight, right? How about we're not just spectators watching the different armies go on it. How about we join and sign up for the armies of the Lord and say, Lord, put me on the front line, right? I want to go to battle for the King of Kings. I want to be a good soldier of Jesus Christ, right? I want to be of the spirit of people like Joshua and Caleb. When God, you know, when Israel sent the 12 spies to, to spy out the promised land that God was giving them to, as an inheritance, you know, 10 of them, the majority came back and, and said, there's giants there, we can't do it. And then Caleb, was, was the one guy out of the twelve. He stood up in front of the whole congregation of Israel and he said, no, we are more than able to go and to fight and to slay the giants and to inherit the promises. <laughs> he said, I'm ready to fight the good fight. Joshua was the only one who stood with him. He was ready to fight the good fight. Let's be people like that. You know, it's usually 10 out of 12 don't want to get in the fight. Let's be people who get in the fight. The fight of what? Of faith. Meaning we're going to be people, it's not a, a fight in the terms of we're constantly butting heads with people, but it's a fight against the devil, right? Our warfare is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, right? And so we got to come with the word of God, with the grace of God, with the love of God and say, no, I'm going to be doing battle in my life and I'm going to fight the good fight. So when we get to the end of the life, it's like, man, we have no fight left in us, right? We lay the sword down and say, man, I battled. He didn't say I just fought the good fight. He said, I have finished the race. Wow, I have finished the race. Anyone here ever been in a race before? Anyone here ever not finish a race? You know, the first race I was ever in, I didn't finish. I, uh, you know, I, I ran cross country my 10th my grade year in high school, and I had never run a race before. I'd never run three miles before in my life. But apparently the coach thought I could run. I don't know why. <laughs> so he put me on the varsity team. And I get there, and, we, and, and everyone's going fast right at the beginning. I'm like, what? So I'm trying to keep up with them. 
and I'm coming around, you know, we're in the last lap. It's on O'Melveny, you know, the park off of Balboa, up and down those hills, and it's hot. It's the end of August, 110 degrees, and I'm going up the last hill. I got about a quarter mile left, and I'm, I'm in last place of everyone on the varsity team. I'm in last, but now the JV guys are coming up close behind me. And you know what? The pride got in the way, right? And the JV guy, he passes me on the last mountain. And I'm just like, you know, I'd, I, this is shameful, right? And so, so instead of stopping like my body was telling me to stop, I kept moving and I blacked out. I fell. They had to drag me off of the path. I came to a few minutes later. And it's like, um, you know, I think about it now, like, and man, I'm thinking, man, if that happened now, I'd probably have all sorts of restrictions on me, can't run the next race, got to go to the hospital, all this stuff. They didn't do that. They just threw me in the next race. <laughs> but you know what? It's not about winning the race. It's about finishing the race. And that's what we need to, we need to have the mentality of is, you know, I just want to finish. Maybe that means I got to slow down at some times, right? <laughs> but I'm going to keep marching forward. Amen. And I'm not going to be prideful about others who are running the race better than me. I'm going I'm to cheer them on the way, right? Amen. I'm going to say, you got to help me get better running this race. But I'm not going to fall out of the race. I'm going to keep marching forward. I want to be able to say at the end of my life, I've kept in the race. I've kept my faith. I've kept marching forward. I fought and now I finished. And how do we finish the race? There's only one way. There's only one way you're going to finish the race in faith, and that's by looking unto Jesus. Hebrews 12, verse 1 says this, Therefore we also, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How? Looking unto Jesus. We see him at the finish line, right? The author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. We constantly need to have that spiritual vision of the risen and reigning Lamb of God. Amen? And we need to see him there covered in all of his covenantal scars of love that he endured on the cross specifically for you. And we need to look at Jesus and we say, Jesus, if you did that for me, I'm going to keep running with joy. I'm going to be encouraged by all these examples of faith who have gone before me and who have gone alongside of me. And I'm going to keep running the race. Amen? Amen. And then he says, I haven't just fought the good fight, Timothy. I've not just finished the race, but I've kept the faith. Through thick and thin, in freedom and in imprisonment, in all perils by land and sea, and now in the very face of death, I have never lost my faith in Jesus Christ, Timothy. I have kept the faith. And he says, now there is a crown of righteousness that is awaiting me. And it's awaiting all who love his appearing. You know, those who would run in races in the Greco-Roman world, in their Olympics in Greece. Uh, it's interesting, I was just reading, um, I've been reading Josephus' uh, works. He was a Jewish priest and he was a general in the Jewish army uh, during the, this whole time, this whole season, from 30 to 70 AD. He writes about the end of the Jewish temple, its destruction, the Jewish war. One thing I learned actually last night as I was reading was that Herod the Great, who was the king during the time Jesus was born, he actually funded a lot of the Olympic Games in Greece. He funded a lot of different things around the world. He was trying to gain favors constantly from all the different si kinds of powerful people. But he funded the Olympic Games, uh, and he gave some sort of endowment to it. And, you know, during these Olympic Games, when you would run the race, you know what you would get as the prize? You would get 
a crown, a laurel wreath, right? And that's the type of crown that Paul is talking about here. He's not talking about like a kingly diadem. It's the same word rather for the crown that the athlete receives at the end of the race. And how many know that that race or that crown is a crown that perishes, right? It's a glory that is just for a moment. In fact, you might have the adulation of people for a few days, maybe even over the course of your lifetime, but eventually it ceases. Well, what is the crown that Paul says he's about to receive? It is an imperishable crown. It is a crown that does not fade away. And, you know, this again says that we need to live life in light of eternal things, right? It's like what Jesus says. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, right, where... Thieves break in and steal where moth and rust destroy. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Where thieves don't break in and steal, where steal, where moth and rust do not destroy. Imperishable things in heaven. The crown of righteousness awaits me. Now, now, Paul had already been made righteous in Jesus Christ. But that crowning moment of that eternal righteousness when he stepped into the realm of heaven before the judgment seat of Christ, that was the, the glorious thing he was waiting, right? He couldn't, he, he couldn't wait to get there. Let's look at verse 9. He tells Timothy this, Do your best to come to me quickly, for Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia. So, we'll see over the course of these last several verses, Paul highlights 16 different individuals who are either headed in positive or negative directions in life. And the first person he mentions is Demas. Demas. In fact, Paul mentions Demas two other times in his letters. He mentions him in his letter to Philemon and in his letter to the Colossians. And in his, uh, the first time he mentions him, in Philemon, he calls Demas his fellow laborer. In Colossians, he just mentions him, but he doesn't say anything about him. And now, he says, Demas has departed me because he loved this, this present world. It's almost like this tra trajectory of this great co-worker that he's even, you know, thanking God for in his letter to Philemon. And then he's just Demas, and then he's Demas who has departed from me. And we see this kind of slow degeneration in the life of Demas. And, um, you know, apparently Demas, he wasn't prepared to stick with Paul through thick and thin. He hadn't counted the cost. The heart-rending departure of Demas, you know, it kind of makes me think of, like, divorce, right? In the traditional marriage vows of a wedding, what does someone say? They, they commit to someone for better or for what? For worse. For richer or for what? in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish, till death do us part. Meaning, I'm going to stick with you through thick and thin no matter what we go through in life. You are more precious to me than any other comforts I might have in this world. And, you know, I think a lot of times when, when we understand, you know, we're the bride of Christ, right? And, you know, our union with Christ should be like that. That no matter the challenges we face in this, this world, Christ, I'm going to stick with you through the thick and thin, for better or for worse. I'm going to be doing the work of the ministry. And Demas apparently didn't have quite that perspective. Now, maybe, maybe he came around later in life. We don't know how his story ended. But at this point, Paul is angry with him, you know, and he, he tells Timothy about it. Cretans, we don't know anything else about. He's not mentioned anywhere else, but he's not mentioned as, you know, maybe he just went out on a missionary journey, not necessarily departed Paul. Titus, the same thing, probably went out on a missionary journey. Look at verse 11. Only Luke is with me. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, because he is helpful to me in my ministry. Luke is with me. You know, Luke was in harm's way by being in Rome at that time. At this time, Probably, it's probably after 64 AD when persecution broke out against the Christians. So if you were with us a couple months ago, we watched the movie Paul the Apostle. If you can remember, Jim Caviezel plays the role of Luke, and he's the only one who's with Paul in his imprisonment there. 
Why? Because it was very dangerous. They were literally uh, burning Christians on stakes. They were crucifying them. And, you know, it was dangerous. And yet he's calling for Timothy to come with him and what? To bring Mark. Why? Because Mark is useful to me in my ministry. Wow. You know, of all the people Paul could have asked Timothy to send, he only tells him, send Mark. You know, it's really astonishing. You know why it's astonishing? Because at the beginning of Paul's ministry, Mark was the only guy that Paul didn't want with him in ministry. And now he's the one guy he does want with him in ministry. If you can remember, this Mark that he's asking Timothy to send, (laughs) he was with the church from the very beginning. He was there at Pentecost. In fact, the early church was meeting in his mother Mary's home. When Peter is released by an angel from the prison, he comes to Mark's house, in, in his mother Mary's house, right? And he's knocking on the door. And then Mark, he, 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 he goes with Paul and with Barnabas on the first global mission journey. He has a heart for the Lord. He, he, he wants to do things for God. But after their ministry in Cyprus and they sail to Asia Minor and they have this hundred mile trek to the dangerous area of Galatia, Mark, he departs. He says, adios, guys, I gotta go. <laughs> he goes back to Jerusalem. And Paul is upset. So after uh, the Jerusalem council, and he's getting ready to prepare for his second missionary journey, this is what it says in Acts 15, verse 38. But Paul insisted that they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had, gone, and had not gone with them to the work. Then the contention became so sharp that they parted from one another, and so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, being commended by the brethren to the grace of God. So here we see there's such a part, a sharp dissension, like, no, I do not want Mark with me. We're not bringing him, right? That he has to choose a new missionary partner. And now, when he's in his prison at the end of his life, the one guy I want who I know is going to be really helpful for me is Mark. Send Mark. Do you believe that? In fact, in Colossians, which Paul is writing during his first imprisonment in Rome, He mentions that Mark is with him there. Apparently, whether on the third missionary journey or while he's in Rome during that two years, Mark had become very useful to Paul in his latter ministry. Maybe he even went with Paul on his fourth missionary journey after he was released from that first imprisonment. And he's of great help to to Paul. You know, and, and I think that this just shows us Um, that though we may have been timid with our walk in the Lord early on, the Lord can always turn us around. He can make, you know, weak people strong, timid people courageous. He can restore and reconcile unlikely relationships. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad Paul can say, bring Mark, he's useful? Verse 12, I sent Tychicus to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas. He's cold. And my scrolls, especially the parchments. Ah, bring the books. I like that verse, right? Bring the books, Timothy. Bring my scrolls. Probably he's talking about the Old Testament here. You know, uh, those were very valuable resources, right? Very few people, individuals, owned scrolls. It was usually just the synagogues who owned those things. It could have even been early um, early, uh, uh, copies of the Gospels. You know, the one thing that, that you need in the time of need is the Word of God. Amen. And Paul is saying, yeah, bring my cloak. That'd be nice. I want to be warm. It's cold here. But more than anything else, bring the parchments and bring the scrolls. Why? Because those things are God-breathed, and they're of more profit to me than anything else in this cell. I need the encouragement of God in this time. Bring the Word, Timothy. <laughs> It makes me think of the first uh, English reformer, a guy by the name of William Tyndale. He was the first guy who translated the Bible from Greek into English. He lived during the time of the other reformers, guys like Martin Luther. And you know what he faced for translating the Greek into the common vernacular of the people English? which the King James is largely based off a lot of his early work. The, the, The book we read today is largely based off of the work of William Tyndale. You know what he faced for that persecution? He was thrown in prison. 
He was cold. You know what he wrote in that time? He said this. He, he wrote to his friend from his cell, Send me, for Jesus' sake, a warmer cap, <laughs> something to patch my leggings, a woolen shirt, and above all, my Hebrew Bible. There is nothing that gives strength and courage and help in our trials like the Word of God. Amen. Verse 14. Alexander, the metal worker, the New King James says, the coppersmith, a worker of metal, didn't be great deal of harm. The Lord will repay him for what he has done. You should be on your guard against him because he strongly opposed our message. So Paul now gives a warning. We don't know what this guy did to him, but apparently it was something bad. Maybe he, he informed the government about Paul. Maybe he was part of the reason for Paul's arrest. I don't know. But he did some sort of harm. Maybe he was in the church. Maybe he wasn't. And he's just saying, hey, be on the lookout for this guy. You know, he did me harm. He might do you harm. Don't, don't take vengeance on him. God will deal with him. You know, Paul was constantly saying that, you know, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. You know, be cautious of, 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 of people. Understand that some people are not out for your good. But at the same time, let the Lord deal with them. In fact, in Romans, he says this, Romans 12, 19, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. He quotes from the Proverbs here and from Deuteronomy. Vengeance is mine, I will repay says the Lord. Verse 16, At my first offense, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them. But the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed, and all the Gentiles might hear it. Meaning what? He is preaching the gospel before Nero and before all the eminent men there in Rome. And he's saying, as I do this, this is a fulfillment of my duty, that the gospel will fully go to the Gentiles. For from that center of the world, Rome, it would be spread to the rest of the Roman world. He says this, and I was delivered from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. That's how he views his beheading, <laughs> right? To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Though no one stood with Paul at his defense, the Lord stood with me. And he strengthened me. Makes me think of Jesus when he's in his greatest time of trial, right? And none of the disciples could even stay awake. They all fell asleep. He's alone suffering in his greatest time of anguish. He's fallen prostrate on the ground before the Father. And he's praying, Lord, if this cup can pass from me, Lord. If it can, you know, I'll do it. But nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And it says, as he's in that anguish, as he's praying those prayers, that an angel stood there and he strengthened him. You know, God stands with us in our deepest trials, even when nobody else stands with us. And he brings strength and he brings grace, right? That's why we need the word. That's why he says, bring the parchments. Verse 19, greet Priscilla and Aquila in the household of Onesiphorus. Onesiphorus was the guy, one guy who searched him out in Rome during the second imprisonment. Uh, uh, Priscilla and Aquila were Paul's fellow workers from the time of his second missionary journey. They constantly have church, churches wherever they're going, whether they're in Rome, whether they're in Corinth, whether they're in Ephesus, they have a home church. Verse 20, Erastus stayed in Corinth, and I left Trophimus sick in Miletus. Do your best to get here before winter. Eubulus greets you, and so do Pudens, Linus, Claudia, and all the brothers and sisters. So these are probably members of the Roman church. I just want to focus on one thing he says there. Trophimus, I left sick in Miletus. You know, Trophimus is called, in Acts 21, Trophimus the Ephesian, meaning he uh, was someone who was near and dear to the church, where Timothy is presiding at that time. He's in Ephesus. And so he tells him, you guys might be thinking of Trophimus. Well, he was with me at the end of my fourth missionary journey, and uh, I left him in Miletus sick. I left him in Miletus sick, so make sure you search him out. Make sure you go find him. You go help him. You know, one thing this, this shows us is, you know, when we go through Acts, it's like, we see all these miracles, right? I mean, when he was on the island of Malta, it says, every sick person 
came to uh, Publius's house and Paul laid his hands on them, and they were all healed. And yet here we have this great minister of the gospel, Trophimus, who's, who's, who's risking his life on these missionary journeys with Paul, and he gets sick. And apparently, Paul prays for him, right? I'm sure. But he isn't immediately healed. You know, one thing this shows us is that, you know, just because someone is sick doesn't mean necessarily they lack faith. Doesn't mean the one who prayed for them lacked faith, Paul. It just means that they're sick. You know what we do when we're sick? We keep pressing forward in faith, and we surround them with encouragement and help them in their time of need. That's what we do. Trophimus, I left in my latest sick, I'm sure, you know, go and help him. Verse 22, how does it end? The Lord be with your spirit, grace be with you all. That's how he ends it. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you all. Paul always ends his letters with a word of grace. In fact, how did he talk to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2? He said, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Timothy, the grace of the Lord be with you. His unmerited favor, his loving kindness, his gift of righteousness, that is what will keep you strong. That is what will keep you fighting the good fight. That's what will keep you running the race. That was what will keep you faithful, right? Looking unto Jesus, looking unto the grace of God, reveling in God's grace and His unmerited favor, falling on your knees in view of His great grace to you. The, the Lord be with your spirit and the grace be with you. Amen? So that's what, how we need to view our, our life, right? We, we look at this testimony and this life of Paul and his final words and all of these charges that he's giving, and we say, you know what? We're going to be like Mary. Let it be to me according to your word. Amen? I'm going to fight. I'm going to run. I'm going to keep the faith. I'm going to look to Jesus. I'm going to be ready in season and out of season. And I'm going to love people like Jesus loves me. Amen? We're going to take communion. Anyone not have a communion element, go ahead and raise your hand. 